Well, good morning again. Uh, Last week we left chapter 14. We talked about the mark of the beast. And several of you pointed out, I was not aware of this till this week, but several people pointed out that in the Seattle Times last Sunday morning, as we were talking about the mark of the the beast online here, uh, this advertisement came out in the newspaper, the Seattle Times. Do not take the mark of the beast. And it's a whole description of that. And it's interesting that this timing, uh, the same Sunday, this was in the paper. And I started to read this. Several people uh, sent this to me. And so I started to read it and see what, was, what it was about. And I noticed that it did something uh, that we do today, actually, in social media. Has anybody ever heard of the hashtag, you know, or the, it's what some of us know as the pound sign, but the hashtag, you know, hashtag, and then you put a keyword next to it to try, try and draw attention to that particular topic or video or post on social media. Well, that, this is similar. This does something very similar. What it does is it takes keywords that will get our attention, right? Let me give you some of those keywords this morning. Luciferes is one of the keywords. The word Lucifer is in Luciferes. Now, Luciferes is a bioluminescent marker that uh, microbiologists use to research cells. And so uh, it could be the case that they're using this bioluminescent marker called luciferase. Lucifer, the word lucifer means light, right? And so luciferase is the term for this bioluminescence they used or light that they used to mark cells and they can track what's happening with a virus or cell or bacteria and they can study and do cell research. So luciferase is a key word. Uh, quantum dot tattoo. How do you like that one? That's another one that's in here. Quantum dot tattoo. This refers to this idea that the, when they vaccinate a child in a developing country, they can actually mark the skin and leave a record of the immunization. So this way, because kids don't often carry around immunization records, they need to know if the, if the child's been immunized or not. So they'll leave a little dot, uh, quantum dot tattoo on the skin. Uh, could be on where on the arm or hand or forehead. We don't we don't know. So that's part of it. So tracking and the vaccine. The word vaccine is used here. We're all interested in vaccines and COVID nineteen. And then this I this bolded word tracking. Right. It's a big topic right now. They're going to track us. Right. And so people are fearful of this. And so what this does is it takes these key words, these kind of hashtag words and takes them out of context, really, is what it's doing. It's taking these words out of context and then repackaging them together to make it look like it's the mark of the beast. And this is what conspiracy theories do, is they take these random, unrelated things out of context and repackages them or recontextualizes them to the agenda in which they're trying to promote. So in this case, this uh, particular ad is trying to promote that this is gonna be the mark of the beast. This was referred to in the 80s. This was referred to in the 90s. It's going to be referred to again in the 30s and the 40s of this millennium. So part of this idea is that part of conspiracy, what conspiracy theories do is they play upon the anxieties and fears of people. And it takes these things, these keywords, to trigger you, trigger me, to trigger us into thinking, oh my gosh, this is the mark of the beast. When in reality, if we use our brains... And we really do our research. In fact, I just did this with simple Google, what we call Google research. Uh, Google research, you find out that these are all things out of context. And not, none of these things are necessarily true in real life. So that's the thing about uh, conspiracy theories. 
But maybe there's a conspiracy theory that you've heard recently. I know there's a lot floating out there. This is a, this is a great time for conspiracy theories because people experience anxiety and fear. And conspiracy theories use that anxiety, use that fear to, to get us to move towards a certain agenda. So just be aware of that. But again, we're interpreting the book of Revelation. Now, in fact, today we're going to look at four chapters of Revelation. We're not going to cover every word of it, but we're going to give you some highlights this morning, every chapter. And what is God really calling us to be about when all these things are happening in the world? So that's a great question for us this morning. So let's just remind ourselves where we're at in the book of Revelation. We've been talking about there are three scenes of seven, seven the scroll with seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And today in chapter 15 is when the bowls of God's wrath are poured out on the earth, the seven angels with the seven bowls. So we're finally coming to the third scene of plagues. Actually, these bowls, seven bowls, represent plagues on, that are going to be poured out. And I hear what these bowls represent. And they remind us of the Exodus story when the plagues were poured out on Egypt to free God's people. And so the seven bowls represent, the first one is, is poured out is sores and sores break out on people. Number two, uh, the blood is poured out, uh, the waters, the sea, the oceans become uh, blood. And then number three, the, the fresh waters, the rivers become blood. And number four, the sun becomes so intense it scorches the earth and people with fire and burns them. Number five, there's darkness on the earth. And six is a drought. The Euphrates River dries up, and, uh, which is a main uh, river there, which also is connected to Babylon. And we're going to see that here in Revelation. And then also seven. And then the final plague that's poured out, the final bolt, is an earthquake, which in a, represents final destruction of the earth. Because what's happening is that God, in each of these scenes, every number seven, you know, the seventh trumpet, the seventh seal, and now here again, the seventh bowl, is this final destruction in this one hour has come. And it uses that phrase that everything is destroyed in, the, in an instant, basically. And that what God is doing is God is recreating the earth, a new heaven and a new earth, which we'll see at the end of Revelation. So what's happening is this imagery is being used uh, to bring about final judgment. I also would like to point out that one of the things that's going on here is that there's always an opportunity to repent here. There's always an opportunity for people, for nations, for kings, for rulers, for people to, to come out from the ways of the beast and the dragon and to repent and to join the people of God. This is, what we see here is that we don't see repentance at all from the kings of the earth, the rulers of the earth. They start to gather an army to fight against God's army in what we know as the Valley of Armageddon. This is also the place of Megiddo uh, in, in Israel as well. And you can go visit the archaeological site in Israel. And this is where archaeologists have discovered that in this valley, in the Valley of Armageddon, where this, this cosmic battle will take place between God's army and, and basically Lucifer's army, Satan's army, and the spiritual forces will engage in battle. In, at Megiddo, or Armageddon, there's been 34 different battles fought there throughout human history. And so this has been a, a known, people in the first century would have known this is, a, this, is a, this is symbolic. This is a symbolic battle of the spiritual forces. And so the mention of Armageddon here is, is mentioned here in this chapter. And this is what emerges out of those seven bowls and seven angels. 
Now, in the middle of this chapter, though, we hear again from Jesus himself. And Jesus himself is talking here in Revelation. We haven't heard from Jesus in, since chapter 3 in the letter to the churches. And so here's what's happening with that. And Jesus says this, Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed, so not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. This is Jesus reminding us again, like, this is going to happen like I think. We're not going to expect it. We're not going to know. We're not going to be able to predict it, right? Which a lot of people try and predict it. And he says, he talks about staying awake and remaining clothed. This reminds us of the Gerasene demoniac in the Gospels, where uh, Jesus goes across and finds this, this, this person who's uh, basically been taken over by a legion of demons. And he frees him. Jesus frees him. And it says to, to them, they found him clothed and in his right mind. Again, this idea here is that you and I are supposed to be in our right mind. We're supposed to be clothed. We're supposed to be awake. We're supposed to be ready for whenever this happens. And notice that God gave us minds. God gave us brains to use to say, hey, this is a conspiracy theory. This is somebody else's agenda for me, and, my, and, and I'm not to be afraid or anxious, but I'm to trust that Jesus has got things under control, right? And that's the, what Jesus is saying, is just stay in your right mind. God gave us minds to think and to be critical thinkers, to think about these things, hey, is this, this seems a little off to me, and maybe this isn't true. And so we have to always be thinking about that. So use your brains as well that God gave us to help us understand these things because we just want to be ready and faithful when God, when Christ does come back. Now, the, the thing though is that everything here is happening and what we're seeing is that there are kings, there are rulers, there are nations, there are people that are not repenting, they're not joining God's people, they're not being in the kingdom of God. And then the church itself, the people, the Christians are being encouraged. We are being encouraged to be faithful, to endure, to be patient, and to be ready for whenever this happens, right? So let's jump to what we heard read this morning in chapter 17, which is this dark image of the, the prostitute on the beast. And this prostitute is beckoning uh, to the God's people. And really what the prostitute represents or the harlot represents is the city of Rome. Uh, it mentions the city of seven hills. Has anybody ever heard of a city of seven hills anywhere around here, maybe Seattle. In fact, many cities claim to be built upon seven hills. And Rome was, was known as a city on seven hills. And it was depicted on, even on some of the coins of the day. And so this, and the, and the goddess, along with, along with a goddess of Roma, and that goddess was depicted. And so again, uh, what John is using is this imagery of Rome being this city or this harlot riding the beast. And the beast represents wealth and luxury and power again. And so what Rome is doing is riding upon it, even at the expense of God's people in this cup of the blood of the martyrs that she's holding in her hand. This is all symbolic imagery to, to point really directly to Rome and the city of Rome, which is also another word that is used here is Babylon. It's representative of Babylon in the Hebrew scriptures. 
And so Babylon is the harlot city, the harlot empire that's at work in the world in the first century. And we could look at these harlot empires today. Interesting, again, John is using Hebrew scriptures, Hebrew lessons to communicate. And one of the big images that we see in Revelation, we'll get to this more later, but is this idea that the nation of Israel in the Hebrew scriptures was, was either, was like a bride, was like in a marriage relationship with God. And there were times when the nation of Israel was faithful to God, and there were times when the nation of Israel was unfaithful to God. And this image of a marriage and faithfulness is what's brought out in the Hebrew scriptures. And again, John is employing this kind of language here in Revelation. And Hosea, the prophet, minor prophet Hosea, was even at one point went and married a promiscuous woman as a sign to the people of Israel that they had been unfaithful. And again, what is the key theme or message of Revelation is be faithful to God, right? Don't be unfaithful by giving in to the harlot empire, the Roman empire, the city of Rome, and going along with that. But don't, don't do that, right? Stay in the kingdom of God. And so be faithful to God in the midst of that. And the ways that uh, John has been pointing out to us is that how this harlot empire works is that one of the things it does is it seduces people. It seduces people with its wealth and its luxury and its power and its unrestrained pleasure and its calling to the other nations and the kings and the other leaders to come and to be a part of Rome and the Roman Empire. And so John is using this, that, showing that Rome is really like this harlot in the streets calling out uh, to, to other people to say, hey, trust me. Rome is saying, trust us, trust our wealth, trust our power, trust, you know, we'll keep you safe, trust our security. And then the other thing that it represents too is it, it presents itself as being good, right? A lot of times the empires, uh, they, they, these harlot empires and even empires today, they'll, they'll try and uh, present themselves, market themselves, if, if we will, to people as being good. Like, oh, well, look at the good that we're doing, even though they're hiding all the stuff that happens behind closed doors, right? Like the prostitute, like the harlot, out on the streets dressed very nicely with jewelry and headband with, and the Roman uh, uh, harlots would have had their name on their headband, which is also referred to in chapter 17. And so this idea is that, you know, there's, it's going to present very good. In fact, Lucifer, Satan appears as an angel of light, right? Appears very good, but there's a deception to it. And that's what John's pointing out about the Roman Empire. And the other thing is that the Roman Empire, clearly with the cup in her hand, is opposed to God's people. Because God's people represents a threat to wealth and power and security uh, of the nation, of the Rome, because God's people are saying, we're not going to get caught up in this. We're not going to get swept up into these temptations, so to speak. And we're going to be the people of God in the midst of this culture of Rome. And so that's what's being communicated here. Now, if we keep going on, we find in the end that ultimately what happens to the harlot is that she's destroyed by the very own people that are under her. Rome ultimately will be destroyed by the kings and the rulers that have been acquiescing to her all these years. And that's how Rome comes to its demise. And so this is also a future prediction as well going on here. And then in chapter 18, what we see is mourning and lament of people in Rome. 
because Babylon has fallen. The, the city has fallen. Babylon has fallen. Rome has fallen. And it's talk, it keeps using this phrase, in one hour, your doom has come. In one hour, your doom has come. And so what's happening here is that in an instant, everything's going to change. In an hour, everything's going to change. And then notice, if we were to keep reading in chapter 18, we'll, we'd learn that there are different groups of people that are mourning the doom of the harlot, right? And it's interesting that John points out uh, kings who were, what were they? They were mourning the loss of luxury and luxury items because of the fall of of Rome. Uh, That the merchants were mourning the loss of trade and trade and goods in the marketplace. And the sea captains are mourning the loss of transportation, the loss of movement of supplies and people and loss of transportation. It kind of reminds us of what's happening today, right? The loss of these conveniences and comforts and luxuries that we've come to know, the loss of transportation, the loss of trade that's happening because of what's happening in our day. And so what what John is saying is like, all this is going to change and we're going to mourn and lament the loss of that, at least the, the empire will mourn. But in the midst of that, John says this to God's people and through the book of Revelation in chapter 18, verse four or five says this, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven and God has remembered her crimes. Uh, what, what, God, what John is doing through this the letter is saying, to God's people, to us today even, come out of the evil harlot empire, right? Come out of her ways. Come out of the ways of the harlot empire that's seducing us with money, sex, and power and these things. Come out of this empire and be the people of God. That's the call to be faithful to God, to be the people of God. This doesn't literally mean move out of the city of Rome. And that's not what God's saying. That God's not saying move out, relocate, go live in somewhere else. But what God is saying is be faithful to who you're called to be. And so that's what's happening here. Now, that's kind of the whole picture. We've covered 15, 16, 17, 18, chapter, four chapters, and we've kind of hit the highlights, the images of those four chapters. What does that mean for us today? What, what do we do with that, right? And so John uh, is also communicating something that I think is relevant for us today, uh, David De Silva wrote a book about uh, John and John's ways in Revelation. He's also written a commentary on the book of Revelation. He's a New Testament scholar. And here's one of the quotes that, that struck me from David De Silva. He said, John understood that a person cannot share in the profits of domination without also sharing in its crimes. I want to read that again. Just let that, let us pause here and just kind of reflect on that. John understood that a person cannot share in the profits of domination without also sharing in its crimes. So what David De Silva is talking about is corporate responsibility. You know, you and I often think about individual responsibility, but what he's talking about is that we corporately, collectively are also responsible. And we, you and I, uh, we are a part of what's known as the consumer class in the world. We're the ones that consume things. And all that the virus has done is disrupt our consumerism, hasn't it, right? That's what's been disrupted. And we also maybe is a time for us to step back and reflect on how our consumerism 
has actually created injustice and oppression for other people in the world. Maybe that's what's happening. And John's certainly pointing that out, that the, the Roman Empire versus uh, the kingdom of God, this is, this is being talked about. Here's another quote from uh, early church fathers. So this, is not, this is not a new idea. This is an old idea that people keep talking about. And Chrysostom, early church father, said this, to grow rich without injustice is impossible. To grow rich without injustice is impossible. And again, so even an early church father from early on was able to say, you know, could see this even in, not just in Revelation, but in the world, that whenever we're, we're getting wealthy and consuming things and being consumers, that sometimes somebody else is paying the price. And we're not even aware of it as individuals. And so it's hard for us to take individual responsibility for something we're not even aware of or to see ourselves, as, we sometimes see ourselves as helpless in our individual responsibility, even though we have a corporate problem. And yet, there's no, it's not, not that all hope is lost. Take, for example, recycling. Do you recycle? I imagine that many of us recycle today. How did we get there? Well, we recognize that collectively, corporately, as we were consuming things, plastics in particular, and plastics were harming and out in the environment and were not getting cleaned up, we all corporately, collectively came together and made a decision to recycle. We decided to change a practice in our everyday life, a daily practice. Instead of putting it in a trash can, we're going to put it in a recycle bin. And so collectively, we became together and we began to recycle together collectively. So, but we all took individual, it requires us all to take individual responsibility for that collective effort to work and actually make an impact in the world. I would suggest to you as well that that's true for us as the people of the kingdom of God. There are times when we individually alone are not able to bring about change to what's going on in our world. But when we collectively come together as the kingdom of God, there's power. There is God's kingdom. There's God's authority within that. And so when we collectively come together and we say, I'm gonna, we're going to change our daily practice and we're going to make a difference in the world, that's power. There's power in that collective collaboration as individuals. And we're really, not only in Revelation, but even in the Gospels and in the New Testament, we're encouraged to be a people of the kingdom of God, to be called out into the kingdom, saying, come out of the empire, come out of the ways of the world, the temptations of the world, and be the kingdom of God. And when we become followers of Jesus, we join that kingdom. We're a part of that kingdom that God wants to put here on earth. And we pray that in the Lord's Prayer. If you've ever played, prayed the Lord's Prayer, heard the Lord's Prayer, we, we pray this phrase, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that whatever's happening in heaven will come to earth. And really what we're praying for is that God's kingdom would come to, our, to the planet, to our planet earth, that God's kingdom would be revealed here. And it's interesting that as we get into the end of Revelation, we're going to see the return of the king and the return of God's kingdom coming back to earth. And so that's the hope that's being held out there. But in the meantime, we are to be faithful and to persevere and to pray for God's kingdom to come in our lives and to be a part of God's kingdom. So still, how do, what does that look like? I was reminded this week of a priest. His name was Henry Nouwen. And some of you may have heard of him before. And 
He was an academic uh, priest, and he was in academia for 20 years, well-known, successful uh, author and professor. And he decided to leave his well-known, nationally recognized uh, life and go and be a priest at a community called Daybreak Community. And Daybreak Community was a community of mentally handicapped, mentally uh, challenged uh, adults. And he went there to help care for the mentally handicapped in that in Daybreak community. And so after he had gone there, some people contacted him, wanted him to speak at a national leadership conference. And out of that, that sharing that he did, uh, he wrote a book. Uh, in that, the book is called In the Name of Jesus. And he talks in the last part of this book about the temptation to be relevant and the temptation to be spectacular and the temptation of power. And that's what John, the revelation, is getting us to wrestle with, is this temptation of power. And really, I can't say it any better than Henry Nouwen said it. He talked about these three temptations, and then he says this about power. He says, what makes the temptation of power so seemingly irresistible? Maybe it is the power, it is that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God easier to control people than to love people, easier to own life than to love life. Wow. And isn't that the kingdom of God? To love God, to love people, to love life? That's the kingdom. It's hard to do sometimes, right? But sometimes it requires us to step out of the spectacular and into love to be the kingdom of God here on this planet. Let's pray together.